And really, when it got down to it, she knew and could tell me that that baby was a human being and a child. She knew that it wasn't right to kill that child. But what she had been through with men, what she had been through with the culture, you know, and how we treat marriage and how men in general treat women in general, her experiences, it wasn't even really about, I want to kill a child. It was, I want to be able to have autonomy over myself. That's Benjamin Watson, former professional football player and pro-life speaker and author. He shared the story about forming a connection with a pro-choice advocate and being a good listener. And we can all learn from that example. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. I love sharing these conversations with you on Refocus because the world is so polarized today, it's refreshing to hear people talk about issues. And it's important that we bridge the gap through our love for Christ. Uh, I want to engage cultural issues with grace and respect and help us to better understand uh, other viewpoints, not embrace them, but to help us better understand them. Benjamin Watson is a good friend. He and his wife, Kirsten, have seven children. He had a lot of success in the NFL, but his commitment to God and to human life is even more impressive. Benjamin serves as the Vice President of Strategic Relationships with the Human Coalition, which is one of the largest pro-life and pro-woman organizations in the country. He has some powerful comments on the role of men in preventing abortion and standing for life in post-Roe America. He also speaks to the high number of abortions in the African-American community and some of the reasons he believes for that. And in this episode, I talked to Benjamin about empathizing with pro-choice individuals and treating them with respect and compassion, even though we disagree with their positions. He'll be sharing insights from his recent book, The New Fight for Life, Roe, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. Here's my conversation with Benjamin Watson, recorded in front of a group of men on Refocus with Jim Daly. Benjamin, it is so good to have you. I, I just love you. I love everything you stand for. You're doing such a great job in so many areas. You played uh, professional football in the NFL for 16 years. You come out of that, you and your wife are committed to the pro-life cause. You've written this great book, The New Fight for Life. And I've just been really amazed at your commitment. Tell me, where's this coming from? Why do you have such a heart for the preborn baby? Yeah, well, I appreciate uh, you saying those things. I appreciate you. I appreciate you and Focus. We, we've talked about this before. I consider it a privilege anytime I get an opportunity to speak with you and spend time with you and, and really to um, express to you and all those who support this ministry what it means uh, to me personally. I mean, it means so much on a broad scale. But as I mentioned before, like I grew up like a Focus baby. <laughs> I mean, my, 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 my parents, you know, had all the material and, and, and the, the things that you guys are involved with. Um, has really been an encouragement to me and my wife, so I appreciate that. As far as the pro-life stuff, it's crazy. Played 16 years in the NFL, and uh, this was never my, I never thought that I would write a book about the pro-life movement, about where we stand in the post-real world. That was not my goal. Uh, th that was not on my radar. When we had our first child, Grace, Grace is 14 years old now, we went to go get a 3D, 4D ultrasound. And if you're familiar with those things, you can actually see like the baby in utero. And she was, Kirsten was beside me and I was sitting next to her and the technician had put the, the, the picture on the screen and I'm looking at the picture of our daughter and she yawned. Like she and actually, you can see it. she yawned, but then I yawned. <laughs> like I caught the yawn from the baby in utero. How crazy is that? And so we left the place and Kirsten said, you know what, one day I will, this is our first child. He said, one day I would love to provide this service to other women. I think other women and, and men should be able to see their, their, their children. And we just kind of sat on that. And then we had another child and, you know, then we had another child, had another 3D, 4D ultrasound. And then we had another child and we had another 3D, 4D ultrasound. <laughs> And then we had another child, and we <laughs> had a 3D, 4D ultrasound. And at that point, about eight or so years later, God provided an opportunity between Focus and the EOLC with a joint venture to help provide ultrasounds to pregnancy resource centers. Yeah. And that, was, that wasn't our on-ramp, so to speak, as far as caring about the value of life, because 
as believers, we understand that life begins at conception, that life has value from womb to tomb, that no matter your stage of development, no matter your ethnicity, or no matter what part of the world you're from, that there is value in the human person and the human being, and we want to be committed to human flourishing, no matter what that looks like um, for whoever you are. But at that point, when I think you're in the NFL and you purchase an ultrasound unit at a pregnancy resource center in Baltimore, Maryland, people took notice, and that allowed us to even speak on a broader scale yeah. about the issue of life. And you know, specifically, even when it comes to being, being pro-life, uh, that was never for us a political banner or a, a tribe or a club. Again, we believe that simply as believers, as people who care about other people, that we want to serve others however we can. Yeah, it's so good, right? Isn't that great? The, uh, yeah. It is so good. In fact, I think you were fined and penalized with that first pregnancy. <laughs> you've been, didn't read, you, you've been didn't reading. You, didn't you score a touchdown? And, and you, what, what did you do? I, I did. We were, so I was playing for the, for the New England Patriots, and this was, this was 2008. So it was about December of 2008. So our daughter, Grace, our firstborn, was born in January of 2009. And we were on like a two-week West Coast stint. Usually in football, you don't go anywhere for two weeks. I mean, that's like a baseball thing, basketball thing. Football, you're usually in and out. But we were playing the Raiders down in Oakland. That's too bad. It's, it stinks down there, too. Like that sta- I'm glad they got a new stadium. Right. Because that stadium was, was, was terrible. It was time. We were playing the Raiders, and then we were playing Seattle. And so we stayed out there for about 10 days, you know, between playing the two teams. And so my wife, Kirsten, she was nine months pregnant back in Boston in the winter by herself. And so I scored it. Matt Castle was the quarterback. Tom Brady had been hurt that year with an ACL. Matt Castle throws me a touchdown in Seattle. I catch the ball. I take the football, turn it sideways, put it under my jersey, and rub it like a pregnant belly and point at the camera. Like, shout out to my wife who's having my firstborn. Yeah. I see you. You know, it's a gesture of love. Yeah. And the No Fun League (laughs) threw a flag and moved us back, and Coach Belichick was not very happy at all. (laughs) He let me hear it. And not only that, we have something called uh, FedEx Wednesdays in the NFL. Basically what FedEx Wednesday is, if you walk into uh, the locker room about midday before practice and there's a FedEx envelope sitting on your chair in front of your locker, chances are it's not fan mail. Chances are it's a fine. And so that Wednesday, I had a FedEx envelope, and they, the No Fun League fined me $10,000 for using the ball as a prop. Now, what's interesting is they, they reduced it halfway, but it's kind of an ongoing joke. Fast forward literally 10 years, yeah, about 10 years when we had our twins. I did the same thing, and the league had changed, and so there was no fine at that point. But <laughs> I'll always remember that Grace cost me. She cost me, she, she cost me $10,000. How often whatever. have you used that on her? I'm saving it for the right time. She, she, she's a teenager now, so I'm, I've got it tucked away. Yeah, you're ready with that one. I can imagine. Exactly. Let's get to the serious side of things in your book. Um, what was your reaction to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Dobbs decision? Yeah, the Dobbs decision, if, if you can take yourself back and if, you know, anybody here can take themselves back. And right before that decision, about two, a month or so before, two months before, there was a leak unprecedented leak from the Supreme Court about what the decision could possibly be that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. And I remember at that point in time, there was a lot of discussion, um, a lot of emotion, even for us and others I know who have been working in the pro-life movement for years. I mean, people who, you know, have been, uh, whether they're in in areas of faith or medicine or activists or people that work at resource centers or people like yourself, we were all wondering, okay, is this real? Is this a setup? Like, what, right. like, what is that is going to happen? And so I remember on the morning of June 24th, uh, 2022, Kirsten and I were about to travel to Dallas to go speak somewhere. And I started getting flooded with these messages that the Dobbs decision had been overturned. And all of my emotion had kind of happened during the leak. And at this point, I almost was in a st- state of shock. I was kind of in a state of awe. Like, mm. I can't believe this is actually happening. Because I didn't, 
even in speaking and in going around and in meeting with people that are in the pro-life movement, meeting with survivors of abortion, even when we were doing our documentary, I still found it hard to believe that in America, where we stand now, Roe v. Wade would actually be overturned. And so when it happened, there was a sense of shock, excitement, but also a sense of um, wonder because I knew for a lot of women and their preborn children, the circumstances or the reasons why they thought abortion was the way to go didn't change. Mm. Like, it's imperative that the law is important. Overturning Roe was the right thing to do. In essence, sent the issue back to the states. It was an egregious decision in the first place. It had never been made. And for it to be sent back was the right thing to do. But beyond that, I thought, what about the woman who still thinks that abortion is necessary? Mm. Uh, at Human Coalition, we have a stat. You know, I work for an organization called Human Coalition. And there's this stat that 76% of abortion-determined women would prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. Mm -hmm. And when you ask them, obviously it's, you know, relationship with, with the father, it's those sorts of things, but it's adequate housing and reliable housing. It's um, having an adequate wage, livable wage. It's things like education or, I mean, the list goes on. Those are the top things. And so for them, they feel like abortion is my only way to go. And I thought to myself, okay, as pro-lifers, what does this mean in this new post-Roe era? What does this new fight for life look like? And how can we step into these areas in ways that perhaps we didn't see as a necessity before and didn't quite know what to do? Because those issues are, are going to stay. And I also felt, Jim, that at this point in time, when that happened, we better get ready. Exactly. Because the heat is going to turn up, and it has turned up. Talk about that heat a little bit. With that decision, those that oppose a pro-life position, you know, the pro-abortion side, quite a bit of violence is breaking out. Clinics are being set on fire. There's, uh, you know, physical violence going on. I, I know we had a couple of Supreme Court justices who were threatened. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh's family, the the, they arrested somebody who was on his way to try to assassinate him. Yeah. Uh, speak to that environment change. It seems like there's a lot of aggression on this issue. Yeah, th th there is. And, and a lot of that started happening when the leak happened, <laughs> if you can remember. Yeah. When the leak happened, that's when that, a lot of that stuff started happening. A very wise friend of mine once told me not to judge either side of any issue by their loudest activists. Mm, that's good. And he, and he warned me because we do live in a culture and a time, especially with social media, which I'm guilty of, where it's very easy to get entrenched and to see an entire side as their loudest, most outlandish activists. That's called cable news. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, it, and it feeds. And so while we do have to acknowledge the violence and condemn it, we also have to realize that the larger issue isn't even those people, Jim, who are going and you know, having, enacting violence at clinics or the people who are threatening the Supreme Court justice, those people need to be dealt with for sure. But the more insidious part that we need to address are those who believe that abortion is a viable and celebrated option. Mm. The, those who don't quite agree or understand that human life begins at conception and it's valuable even with a preborn child. Those are the people, it, it, the folks that we need to address is a culture that is devaluing human life, not just on the issue of abortion, but on so many other issues yeah. that sometimes we don't think are connected to the issue of abortion. It's so true, and I, I think that uh, just that simple concept that human life, all human life is sacred, yeah. is unfortunately now a debated statement. Yeah. And it shouldn't yeah. be. I mean, that should, should be true be. for all of us, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Exactly. I mean, human exactly. life is human life. It is. It is. And, and some of what I talk about in the book is, you know, when I talk about justice and the Bible talks so much about justice. Um, Tim Keller, who a powerful man uh, of God, um, one, of, one of my favorite books that he wrote was, is called Generous Justice. And in the book, he talks so much about what the Bible says about what justice is. Justice is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Mm. <laughs> it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But he talks about these two words in Scripture 
that mean kind of righteousness and justice and how those two words are married together so often in the book of Psalms and the book of Micah and the book of Amos and, and, uh, and throughout scripture, James, I mean, different places where the, the word turns up and how we as people who love life and who, who understand the value of life should be a people of justice. And, and part of the, the reason for even writing the book was to challenge those in the pro-life movement to see the value of justice in addressing those women in their communities. To see the value of, uh, of justice, meaning creating wholeness and bringing people back into as much as we can on this side of heaven, into a right and whole relationship with the creator. Like, like, like fixing the, the walls of hostility and, and redressing where things have gone wrong and how those sorts of things provide opportunities for life. Yeah. 2019, we did an event in New York. Uh, I, I coined it uh, live from New York. It was so good. A little good. spin it was on so good. Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Alive from New York. <laughs> and uh, we had about 20,000 people show up for that. The key there was a real simple idea, and that was to show people the baby. So we did a live ultrasound. It was kind of a wild scene. We, it was. The permits we'd been working on for six months, we got them at 7.30 that morning. And uh, thank the Lord for the New York Police Department because they were very supportive of our yeah. permitting process and really, you know, not officially, but many of them said, yeah, we'd like to see Focus come and do this. And what was amazing, uh, we had, I think it was you, but one of the early speakers uh, said more black babies died due to abortion mm -hmm. in New York than were born last year. Mm -hmm. That was a true statement. And that made a huge impact, even with the protesters who were there, because mm -hmm. uh, Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ folks were there protesting, focus on the family. Yeah. Kind of, it goes out through social media and they show up. Yeah. But the Black Lives Matter folk who were holding signs dropped the signs and came in with the group. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, an, matter of fact, so probably about two weeks ago, my son was doing this like, he wants to play football so badly. I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, he wants to play football so badly. And, and me and Kirsten are like, uh, you need to be a lot older. We know what football does. No shade any parent that wants to do it, but we want you to be a little bit older. Anyway, we allowed him to do this like two-week thing, this camp at his school. And this guy walks up to me, Jim. I don't know him from Adam. He walks up to me and says, man, I thought that was you. I was in New York at Alive New York. This is in Georgia. Okay. He said, I was at Alive New York. <clears throat> I brought my son. We were living in Oklahoma. I brought my son all the way to New York just to see that. Wow. And so we had a conversation. So what you did there and what you planned is still having reverberations. So first That's of all, awesome. I want to say that. But second of all, that was a true stat at that point. Luckily, when it comes to black abortions in New York City, that is not the truth anymore. That's fantastic. That, that has changed. But, but, but I think what you saw there was people coming face to face with the realities of abortion mm. and coming face to face with how devastating it is. Uh, as I've gone around in pro-life circles, one of the stats that always sticks with me was that black women were three to four times more likely than their white counterparts and they lead any other ethnic group when it comes to the issue of abortion. And the reason why it, it kind of unsettles me is because Usually the conversation stops there. There's never the why. And I like to ask why. Like people never say it's because black women and men like killing their children. Hmm. If they think that that's fine, I, I, I want people to say that. Or the other opportunity or the other option in my, the way I think is, what is it about this demographic? What has this demographic gone through in this country specifically? Mm -hmm. What are the current um, issues facing this demographic that makes them more vulnerable to this decision? And I think we have to wrestle with that. Yeah. Sometimes we don't relate that to the issue of abortion. We put it in a silo. Mm. And some of what I even do in the book is I talk a little bit about the history when it comes to race in this country. You and I have talked about race before and we had some great conversations where you say, ah, oh, is that really true? I was like, yeah, well, this, and we've pushed back, which is yeah. great. That's what yeah. brothers are supposed to do yeah. in Christ, understand these sorts of things. But I, I talk about specifically for black women, how their lives have been devalued in so many different ways, whether it's by medicine, 
where many of them aren't treated equally, whether it's in wages, where they earn 38% of their white male, male counterparts, even though they have the same education. Mm. Uh, when it comes to you know, educational opportunities, those sorts of things, when it comes to real legal and laws that have been passed by this country, how has that impacted this community to possibly make them more vulnerable? There's a stat, another stat that goes around and talks about Planned Parenthood and how they target, and they do. Through advertising, through funds, Planned Parenthood is a $633 million, they got $633 million from the government in 2021. Mm. They are a $2.1 billion industry, abortion industry, largely off the backs of the black community. And so when I look at them, and I think about the history of eugenics in this country, I can't help but draw conclusions about race in this country, but I can also say that Planned Parenthood is smart. They will go where there's fish. Mm. Why are those fish there? Some of the things I talk about in the book. Yeah, and those are the economic issues and yes. things that culture should take a look at yeah. and how to address them. And, and uh, you, you have written about that in several books, and yeah. I think it's really important for us to have those dialogues and to talk those things through. Let me ask you— Especially in the church. Yeah. Especially in the yeah. church because, you know, the, the church, a lot of times we look at the issue of abortion as something out there. And quite honestly, even in this room with 60 or so professed believers, four in 10 women around in the church have had abortions. Yeah. yeah. And so it's not something that's out there, like it's something in here. It's something in the body that we have to, that we have to deal with. And a lot of times we don't talk about it because it's so painful as it should be. Anytime you're talking about life, Jim, it's painful to deal with. But how are we as a body of believers going to repair and pull off the condemnation because there is none in Christ Jesus? How are we going to reunite families and how are we going to take some of these women's pain and turn it into their purpose and their mission if we as Christians don't want to talk about it and we're scared to deal with it? Now, that's really good. And, and the other interesting stat around this is that um, if a pregnant woman, an abortion-minded woman has a person in her corner, Hopefully the boyfriend or the husband, yeah. specifically the boyfriend or the husband, if he's more supportive, it's more likely a majority of those women, abortion-minded women, will have their child. 100%. And so men play a role, uh, even though we're role. told, you know, you can't talk about this because yeah. you're a man, you're not oh, yeah. a woman. You don't have a uterus. Now, you and I are both men, obviously. <laughs> right. No, exactly. So, I mean, so yeah. in that, in, with that criticism, how do you respond as a man to say, yeah, I'm a pro-life leader? Yeah. And it's important for me as a man to be involved in this. It, this isn't just a woman's issue. Yeah, th th that is one of the lies of the enemy. And the thief comes to steal and kill and to destroy. He also comes to confuse. And unfortunately for many men, we've used abortion as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Mm. We have to come to grips with that. We've used abortion as a shield to hide and to um, absolve ourselves of any responsibility or guilt. We have to come to grips with that and be honest about that. The enemy uses that line about you're a man, you can't be involved as a way to confuse and deflect from the real issue. I mean, let's, let's be matter of fact about it. I have seven children. Each of them has 46 chromosomes. They got 23 from me and 23 from their mom. Whether we like it or not, I'm involved. Whether we like it or not, I have a place at the table. And what the enemy does and what so many folks who are influenced by the enemy do is to try to draw a man out of the equation because that's when disorder sets in. Now, whether the man is drawn out by circumstances that he can't control, you know, that, that there are a lot of men who, who are not there. They want to be there, but they can't be because something has happened to them that may be unjust while they're not there. And we have to deal with that. But my point is, in, in agreeance with you, is that men play a huge role. One of the you know, things I love the most about being in the NFL, um, outside of the regular paychecks, um, was... Those are pretty nice. Pretty nice. Seriously. Even on the bottom of the total pool as a tight end moving around, they were still pretty nice. Um, was being, being with you know, 60 or so other guys going through hardships together, like... 
I remember being in the locker room one time. We were about to play the Cleveland Browns. I was playing for the Ravens. And uh, one of the guys, his girlfriend was pregnant. She goes into labor when we get to Cleveland. And it's not looking like he's going to be able to make it back even if he tried. We sat there in the locker room in pregame on FaceTime, praying for him and watching him weep as his girlfriend on FaceTime was having his child. Those types of instances on a football team happen regularly where there's just those types of life-changing moments. And so one of the things I loved about it was seeing a young man who was perhaps having his first child. He was scared, (laughs) like many of us were, whether we had a dad or not. Absolutely. scary. Nobody gives you instructions or directions for this. You know, they just tell you, hey, here you go. And encouraging him to say, you know, you, you have what it takes. And not only that, like we collectively and she needs you and the baby needs you to be the man that God has called you to be. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. Even if a man just says, I'm going to be in this thing with you. And, and maybe the, there are some in here who, and even in this room right now, who, who have a story when it comes to them not being there. There are many men that are suffering that are post-abortive men who actually were a part of an abortion. And what I would say, but not what I would say, but what the Lord would say to you is that there is forgiveness. Hmm. He would also say that there's, that there's redemption. And he would also say that within our failings, many times... That can be the greatest force for good yeah. when we get over those sorts of things. Boy, it's so good. Uh, a comment that we had in The Family Project, which was a mm-hmm. movie that we filmed years ago. Yep. But there was a feminist in that movie that said this, and I thought it was a former fe- feminist. Mm-hmm. She became a Christian, but she said, you know, the feminist movement through the 60s and 70s was about gaining acceptance mm-hmm. by men in the culture. And what we actually got was abandonment yeah. through abortion and other things. Isn't that a powerful yeah. statement? Yeah. We thought we were getting acceptance and what we were receiving was abandonment. And it's so true. Yeah. These yeah. things have loosened the ties between what God intended, mm-hmm. that you make that commitment to each other, right? And then you have children. There's always going to be some sort of trick. <laughs> yeah. There's always going to be some sort of trick. Um, going, even as we go back to the garden, what do we see in the garden of Eden? Uh, what do we see? We see man and we see woman coming from man um, and we see deception and then we see man step out of his role and hide, which we all would have been doing the same thing, and hide from God. And we see Satan go directly to try to flip the order. And then we see the curse. And we see how from that point on, there has been enmity between man and woman. And that no matter what happens, she's trying to gain his approval. He's trying to lord over her. And outside of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, we can't get that right. And you know who suffers? Hmm. The children. Yeah, they do. And that's exactly who's suffering today when it comes to the issue of abortion. And you think about 63 million children. You know, that stat was from last year. And, and even now, because a, a lot of people think that now, okay, it's post-row, abortion's, abortion's over. You know, we can move on. There's actually a lot of confusion and apathy in many people who would call themselves pro-life right now. But the truth of the matter is that abortion is still legal in 75% of the United States. Hmm. The truth of the matter is that 93% of abortions occur in the first 13 weeks. And so even if... We're in a state where there's a six-week week ban, which is great. There's always going to be compromise in the Constitutional Republic. Where, you know, there's always going to be compromise. But even if you're in a state with a 16-week ban or a 15-week ban, 93% of the abortions occur in the first 13 weeks. And so the battle is far from over. Oh, right. <laughs> it's really just changed in respects. It's almost like at a halftime of a football game and you go in and you have your first 15 plays, every defensive coordinator and offensive coordinator scripts 15 plays and you see what the other team is doing. And then you go in at halftime and you realize we've got to make some adjustments and do some things perhaps differently because the landscape has changed. They know what we're doing and now we know what they're doing. And who comes out in that second half and executes the second half game plan? That's where we are and lives are still at stake. 
No, that's a good analogy. Let me go back to Baltimore uh, because that story is so powerful. You and Kirsten, your wife, got involved. That was the first ultrasound machine that you sponsored. Yeah. But speak to the story because it has, I mean, it's just great in every direction. Yeah, well, it's, it's basically people doing what they can do. And a lot of times folks feel like problems are just too big. This is beyond me. There's nothing I can do. And I, I had a real famous coach who said, do your job. <laughs> His name was Bill Belichick. He would scream it at us. <laughs> do your job and do it well. And at that point in time, we were just doing, we were doing our job. You know, we were doing what God called us to do. And the ultrasound, as you know, mm-hmm. is one of the centerpieces of a resource center. For those that don't know, there are 2,700 pregnancy resource centers around the country. And so these centers provide uh, direct services, whether they are um, counseling, first of all, or, or whether they're materials, baby needs, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Some of them even offer educational classes, whatever a mom may need. There are 2,700 of those around the country. And the ultrasound, a lot of times, is the primary piece in there because when a woman, when if she can get her husband or her boyfriend into there, into the clinic, sees the child in utero, it's amazing how things change. That's why they don't want you to see those sorts of things. Right, because it's a baby. Exactly, because all of a sudden you see a heartbeat, you hear a heartbeat, you see a child, it changes things. And so we donated this ultrasound. And what was crazy, the place that we donated the ultrasound to, we went to go visit when it was kind of commissioned. And so Kirsten and I went, it was in Severna Park, Maryland, which is a suburb of Baltimore. I was playing for the Ravens at the time. And uh, we go there and go into this uh, office building where the Pregnancy Resource Center was. And they showed us around. They had a couple people who, a couple women who had gone to the clinic and had kept their children, those sorts of things. And so it was just, just a, we got to meet the staff and all that type of stuff. And then we go into this room that had verses written all over the wall. And the mood was kind of, kind of somber. And as it was explained to us by the director at the Pregnancy Resource Center was that this room was a room where abortions were performed before. See, the building they were in, actually the office space that they were in, had been an abortion clinic at one time. Mm. And in some strange twist of irony, some women still come to that office space seeking an abortion, but instead encounter life. And in that room when they get depressed and upset, um, and, and it gets heavy, you know, dealing with these, because everybody doesn't choose life, and, and God gives us choice. Everybody doesn't choose life. Some people walk out, and they still get an abortion, and it gets heavy, and, and when that happens, some of the workers there go into that room, and covered on the floor is this a blood-stained floor that's covered by a carpet, and there's verses all around. They go in there, and they pray, and they reflect, and they get rejuvenated, and they realize that they have to keep on going. Yeah, that's, it's an amazing story. So it was an abortion clinic and then transformed into the same, a pregnancy resource center, pro-life the same clinic. address. Yeah. I think so often the, the difficulty I have is that people that support abortion sometimes seem crazy to me. <laughs> because it's like you're a human being. I think it was Ronald Reagan who said everybody that supports abortion actually has been born. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a powerful yeah, statement. It is. It is. It is. But, uh, but even Ronald Reagan wasn't always professed as pro-life. Oh, or wasn't always professed right. as pro-marriage. As, as any of those things. Right. right? And so I, I think that, that there is, there is um, hope in that. My wife always tells me, be careful how you talk about people who don't agree with you or who aren't believers because... One day they might be your brother and sister in Christ, and they're going to be looking at you like, how dare you say that about me? See, she checks me all the time. <laughs> but I, I think that, that some people, again, do seem, it's like, how, where, are you getting, where, like, where are you getting this? I had a conversation with a lady in the airport one time, matter of fact, when I was writing this book. And she asked, what was I working on? I was doing some editing. And I was like, oh, boy, do I want to get in this conversation right now? <laughs> like, this is, this is a heavy, this isn't just football. Like, this is a heavy topic. I was like, well, I'm working on this uh, book. She's like, what is the book about? I was like, oh, boy. The book is about abortion. And her, she changed, and we had a conversation. She was pro-choice to death. Like, she was, you know, adamantly 
about pro-choice, but you know what I did in that conversation, as crazy as she may have sounded, was I listened. Mm. And really, when it got down to it, she knew and could tell me that that baby was a human being and a child. She knew that it wasn't right to kill that child. But what she had been through with men, what she had been through with the culture, you know, and how we treat marriage and how men in general treat women in general, her experiences, it wasn't even really about, I want to kill a child. It was, I want to be able to have autonomy over myself. Mm -hmm. And so the issue wasn't that she discarded or cared less about a child. It came across that way for sure. And it's difficult to have those conversations in mass. But when you encounter one of them crazy people and you start asking specific questions, sometimes you get to the source of their pain and it gives you information on how to answer them. Yeah. Now, we didn't leave agreeing. You know, she still was going to be pro-choice, thought a woman should, should make that decision. But I think for once, she actually saw my humanity and I saw hers. That's so important. So important. Uh, let's zero in a little bit in your relationship with your mom and dad, because they were a powerful influence for you yeah. and taught you so much. And, you know, you came from a very good, loving, intact family. Uh, and I think what I'd love to hear from you is just what kind of foundation that gave you for maybe a lot of your success in life. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I owe so much to my parents. I'm the oldest of six kids. And so I always said, I don't want six kids. I do not want six kids. It's crazy. Six kids is a crazy house. You don't have six. There's, there's no resources for anybody. <laughs> We're all trying to, and I was the oldest, and you're right. So I wasn't specific in my prayer. Um, the lesson there is to be very specific very in your specific. prayers. Because we went from five to seven. We just skipped over six. Um, but my parents are... Uh, well, no, I mean, tell, what's really funny is you had five and then you had twins. Exactly. You couldn't have six. Oh, we didn't tell them that. that yeah, we had twins. That's how we skipped. We had twins. We went from five to twins. Um, but my parents are uh, still stalwarts in the community, in the church. My father's a pastor. He was always in ministry growing up in criminal justice, but is my hero today. I think I just wrote on Instagram, happy birthday to my hero. He still is. And my mom, um, you know, people that are highly respected and really demonstrated to us imperfectly, but did the best they could to demonstrate what it meant to be husband and wife, you know, to be mommy and daddy, mm. to be um, mentors to people, to be providers as much as they could. Um, you know, and now it's funny. You don't appreciate your parents that much until you become a parent. Then all of a sudden they become really smart. You know, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, daddy, I know exactly what you were thinking when you were looking at me like you wanted to smack my lips off. I know exactly <laughs> what you were thinking. I'm looking at my son the same way. <laughs> but they, they set us up on a trajectory, first of all, to know the Lord. They would always say, you know, you don't know the Lord based on our coattails. Like you ain't getting into heaven just because we going. You know, it has to be between you and the Spirit calls you and you in repentance and faith turn and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Yeah. So we knew that it had to be an individual transaction. But also, so they set us up spiritually, but they also set us up as, you know, to give 100% in everything that we did. My dad used to say, you know, I don't want you to be a bank robber, but if you are a bank robber, be the best bank robber. You do a hundred percent, whatever, don't quit a hundred percent, whatever you're going to do. That kind of got your attention. <laughs> exactly. Like, but, but that's how we lived our life. I mean, I think even that's how we, we were joking earlier about that tackle um, that I'm known for against Champ Bailey and running across the field. That was daddy saying, don't give up. Wow. That was him saying, give a hundred percent. So Champ Bailey can yeah. blame your father. He can. He can. <laughs> yes, he can. He can because, you know, whether you win or whether you lose, you give 100% because you're, you're doing it um, not unto yourself but unto the Lord. You know, Benjamin, there's a television commentator who said one time the country's kind of come down to two types of people, those who love their dad and those that hate their dad. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Wow. Well, well I think it's powerful because of the role of a man mm. in the role of dads. And that's why I so appreciate you sharing your story um, about fatherhood and all those sorts of things, and leaning into that. And what I, I know 
is a painful spot, but being willing to change the narrative um, in your household, because there's, there's multiple ways we can approach it. You know, I, I know guys who had, who didn't have a father and, or they had a dad who was abusive and they say, you know what, I'm never going to be like him. And they've turned the tables all the way around. I also know those who have had that and, and they've repeated it. Yeah. Which is, I'm not blaming them. But what I'm saying is many times as a father, how we treat our kids is how they're going to, that's what they're going to learn. Right. And so, you know, we talk about God being the father and all those sorts of things. But that statement you made just points to the power of manhood and the importance of manhood. And we're sitting here in a room of 60 plus men who have who have children. I don't know how many people are represented by these 60 plus men. And it's not even just their children because we're sitting in a room of people who have influence. And so there are companies represented here. There are churches represented here. There are social media followers. There are other people underneath these men. And as we look throughout scripture, we see the power of manhood and how men go, so do countries and so do communities and mm-hmm. so do churches and all those sorts of things. So it really, it really is a challenge to pour, to pour into to manhood. And it's also a challenge to, hey, we got we to lean on the spirit as we try to lead our children. We can't, yeah. we, can't, we can't do it on our own. No, it's so true. And I'm so grateful to you for this wonderful book, The New Fight for Life. And you have so much insight. You know, so many people would say, well, you're just a football player. You're so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And the Lord is using you. Thank you, your dad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's just, it's so good to see a leader lead mm-hmm. and to be out there and to take yeah. and to listen and to then give wisdom back. That sounds like somebody I know about in scripture. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's kind of what he did, right? Exactly. He listened to people, he heard people, yeah. and then he told them truth. Yeah. And you do that so wonderfully. You really model that well. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate you being here. Man, I know you got to run back and be, be back with your family. Yeah, it's, it's always good to be here. You know what, though? I'm going to sleep good tonight, you know? Thanks for letting <laughs> me stay in the hotel overnight. I'm be up early to leave, but you know what? Nobody's going to come in my room and wake me up tonight. <laughs> So and that's how, how's, be Kirsten, how's Kirsten feeling about that? <laughs> she can't wait for me to get back. She's going to be calling you, asking you, can she come on the show so she can get away for a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> we would love to have her. She's actually very insightful oh, as well. She is. But amazing. Benjamin, again, thank you so much. We're going to do some Q&A. So maybe the guys have some questions for you if we could do that for awesome. a few minutes. Yeah. All right. Yep. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right, Q&A. Here you go, Frank. Uh, I would just give you first name and where you're from and then ask the question. My name is Frank. I'm from the Lord. <laughs> ben, thanks for uh, helping us just be better. Uh, the room is just full of white old men for the most part. <laughs> and so thanks for giving a little insight into, into your world. Mm. And there's no way I can understand the why when it relates to the African-American community. I can do my best, so I would love to, to hear from you yeah. on, on the why, and not about the economic part, mm-hmm. but about the governance part. And so I am truly wrestling with something, and I've yet to hear the, a, a good answer that helps me be comfortable this, with this situation. So I own some quick service restaurants, okay. and people would come in, and they would work for us, and they would have their child and they'd be back a week later after they had their child. And I thought, this is an amazing strength this person has. And our daughter and son-in-law had the benefit of paternity leave and maternity leave and had paid time off and all kinds of amazing things available to them. And it caused me to, to pause for a second and realize that the folks that work in our organization, even though some of them are really highly paid, much more than what people would think, they don't have these same opportunities for maternity leave and paternity leave because I'm in a penny profit business and I'm selfish sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I don't offer these types of things. Yeah. And, it, and it gave cause for me to think about something that I couldn't believe I was thinking about. Do I want government influence to mandate a selfish person like me to provide paternity leave or maternity leave because I'm not providing that for them caused me to think about 
how many children are being killed because I'm not offering leave of this nature because I'm being selfish, I'm looking at my bank account, and I don't want the government involved, but unless the government gets involved, will I still be a part of the why? So if you don't have an answer, that's fine. This is like a new concept for a number of us to be chatting about. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. Um, I don't even know what your question is. <laughs> but allow me to just respond. I didn't know where you were going to go with the question. I still don't know like what the It sounds like you already understand. Mm. You know, you started off saying, you know, we're a bunch of old white guys and, you know, trying to understand into your world and that sort of thing. But everything you just said is exactly what I tried to write about without having your eyes to see on that side of it. I talk about the fact that the government only mandates a certain amount of paid leave for maternity or paternity and that individual employers or states can change it, but individual employers could, in this new fight for life, find ways to extend that. And what you just said is an embodiment of what I said without actually having your experience of employing people. And what you just said is, I think, honestly, it's the most honest thing I think I've heard in a very long time, time as it pertains to this topic. From, from anybody, much less somebody in your position. And what's amazing is, if you allow me to project, what's amazing is you realized it when it hit you personally, when you saw your grandbaby. And you realized how important and powerful it was for parents to be able to be there and to not have to make a decision possibly to abort because I know I, can, I can't lose this job and I'm not gonna be able to be home with the child anyway, so it's better for me not to have the baby. So it sounds like you, you, you got it already. Like I, I don't have anything <laughs> to add. So that you, you, you figured it out and you're wrestling with that. And all I can say is, no, thank you, for, thank you for seeing it and seeing how it's connected and being willing to see it because a lot of people don't have a soft enough heart to see it. Like a lot of people, they're so focused on their bottom line, and we should as business people, entrepreneurs, and people who are running a company, you have to be, but a lot of people close themselves off to that side of it because they don't want to deal with the wrestling that you're dealing with right now internally. You know, I just want to say that you, I can't really offer anything, I think you, I think you got it. Now it's just deciding <laughs> what that's gonna look like and, and how many other people are in your same boat that you could possibly influence because part of this whole conversation is just, is just being willing to acknowledge how difficult this is for a lot of people and how it influences life. So thank, thank you. Even as an Auburn guy, I say thank, thank, thank you. Boy, that's hard for you. You cool with me. <laughs> I was gonna mention, you know, you go back, we've had Oz Guinness on the broadcast mm -hmm. many times. Oz is a great statesman, thinker, writer, Christian, and his, you know, I don't know, fourth or fifth mm -hmm. removed grandfather started Guinness Beer in Ireland. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that he started it is because the Irish people, the water was so poor that they would drink gin. And he wanted to create a beverage that they would drink that would be healthier, if you could believe it. <laughs> uh, and so he created this kind of robust dark beer called Guinness. Mm. But part of what he did with the proceeds, no other company in the world was doing this at the time. And this great-great-great-grandfather was a believer. And he ended up taking profits from Guinness beer and funded missionaries around the world. He was the first business owner to do paid sick leave, to do paid vacation. Th that's where it started, was yeah. Guinness beer. And this Christian man who started these benefits for people that worked at his company. Yeah. So it is a good challenge yeah. for Christian business people to think differently about how they're spending the pie and what is their greatest calling in that business situation. It should be thought provoking actually. Yeah. Wow. So be a, be a Guinness thinker, 
think outside the box. So that's good. All right, any other questions? I'm Dan from Vancouver, Canada. Okay. All right, so hey, a bit, Benjamin, a bit of a strange question, but um, from Canada, I'm a hockey player, and I've played over 1,000 hockey games, and, uh, but I, out of those 1,000 hockey games, I can think back to one hit that was worse than any other hit that I took. As a professional NFL football player, you took what we call some licks, and is there yes. one that stands out in your mind uh, above all the rest? Well, the worst ones I can't remember. Uh, okay. <laughs> and don't but, want to. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I was waking up from them. Um, there was a guy named Darren Sharper. He was a safety for the Saints and then for the Vikings. And we were, I was playing in New England. We were playing in the old... Uh, Metrodome, yeah, up there, up there in, um, in Minnesota. It's since been torn down. Hard astroturf, you know. They play this ho this horn. You know, it's crazy. All these Minnesota people, it's, and it's cold <laughs> yep. up there. Probably like yep. Canada. Yep. <laughs> Luckily, we're indoors. Yep. And I caught a pass over the middle, and I was wide open. It was a zone coverage. And anytime you're like really wide open and you're standing still, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, "This is too easy. Something bad is about to happen." And I catch the ball and I turn to run and I don't see him, but he's playing safety. So he was about 15 yards from me. But as soon as I stopped to catch the ball, he started making a beeline for me. And he hit me so hard, like I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. You know, you get hit those licks where you just can't breathe. That no. <laughs> you can't breathe. It was, it was one of those, you can't, you can't breathe. Mm -hmm. You hop up, act like nothing's wrong. You put your hands on your hips and then you act like you need to go out and substitute. That was one of those hits. But I always remember, that hit above all else. Um, and then, like I said, there were some others, but I don't remember them. Well, that's right. Okay. That's good. But never an Auburn hit. Never an Auburn hit. Never an all Auburn. Right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's thank good. You. Anybody else? Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I, my name is Bill. And uh, you play in one of the NFL, NBA, woke leagues. What is it like as a Christian in that environment? I think mm -hmm. a lot of us are mm -hmm. looking and watching these games, listening to the commissioners, and their worldview is totally different mm -hmm. than where we are and what we believe in and how we were raised. How is it like for you to be in an environment like that? Mm -hmm. And how do we even begin to support that? I love watching football and all those things like everybody else, but we look at the broad spectrum of sports today, whether it's college, professional, it's really anti-Christian. Um, I'll say this, Bill. Uh, you know, I retired three years ago, and for me, the NFL, quite honestly, was a much safer place as a believer than even outside. And the reason why I say that is because of relationships. So I would sit there and have a conversation with a guy who was not a Christian, didn't want anything to do with Jesus at all. But because we went through some experiences together, because I knew him, because you know, I had some conversations with him and I appreciated him as a person, I valued him. And although his theology was totally different than mine, I could appreciate who he was. Also, what I found is that within any ecosystem of people, a football team, a basketball team, an office, a, a neighborhood, there are people who know Jesus and people who don't. As we look throughout scripture and we look at the early church, even when we look at the Old Testament, they were a people who God called to be set apart. And so while the world around them, while the people around them who aren't believers and who are doing whatever they wanted to do, they had to be set apart. My point is, man, you know, no matter what arena you work in or live in, you're going to be around people who are living antithetical to the gospel. Whether you call them woke or LGBT or inclusion, whatever it is, in your sphere, there are people around you who are living antithetical to the gospel and against the things that we believe. And so it's incumbent upon us to be lights wherever we are. So you asked how it was for me in the NFL? Hey, 
I, I enjoyed it because at the end of the day, I, I, some of my favorite memories were even baptizing players on these teams in the rehab pool in the training room, Bill. In the training room. These are things that are happening in NFL cities, in NFL facilities, in different clubs, not just the NFL, but around sports. People are being saved, and some are, but some are. People are being discipled. I work for a pro ministry right now. We have annual conferences where we'll have 200 NFL players come for worship, teaching, um, faith, family, finances. We have it in the NHL as well as uh, Major League Baseball. And so there is a spirit movement that is occurring, just like it's occurring where you work, it's occurring within professional athletes as well, and it always has been. Now, what, we, what is reported from a maybe political standpoint and you know, from a maybe you want to call it social justice standpoint may not vibe with how you view things should be done. But I can tell you this, some of the, the people who have been most villainized when it comes to standing against either police brutality or racism, they have authentic hearts. And they are doing so because they truly believe that those things are issues. They're not trying to push an agenda. And so I think we always have to be careful in how things are reported. And how they, that's why I love your question, because you asked how it was for me. And all that's going on on the outside of these leagues and all the politics going back and forth inside those locker rooms, you know, we're guys that love our families <laughs> and trying to do, do, honestly do the best we can. And there are many believers on some of these teams as well. It's hmm. good. Well, I so enjoyed that conversation with Benjamin Watson about his NFL career and his advocacy for life at the Human Coalition. Benjamin was so right that we need to be compassionate as Christians toward the women who've had abortions uh, and the men involved too, for that matter, or those who advocate for abortions. So many of them support abortion because they've been hurt by the way men have treated them and are afraid for the baby's future. If you want to be better prepared to defend preborn babies and engage in conversations about this critical issue, please check out the video series. It's in the show notes featuring Scott Klusendorf. He is incredibly gifted in helping you express your pro-life views in a pretty hostile surrounding. And then be sure to get a copy of Benjamin Watson's book, The New Fight for Life. It will open your eyes and expand your understanding of issues in the culture surrounding abortion. One of the reasons for doing the Refocus podcast is to help you reach out to people who may have never experienced the love of Christ. And we're called as Christians to show people who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I hope Refocus is equipping you to engage the culture with God's love and truth. That's it. If you want to help us continue important conversations like this one, I hope you'll support us financially. With a gift of any amount, we'll send you a copy of Benjamin Watson's powerful book. All right, for the inbox segment, here's a voicemail from Julie. Hi, Jim. So I typically talk to a close family member of mine and will occasionally talk about things such as um, abortion. And one of the things that she typically brings out is that not all abortions are selfish are for selfish reason, reasons. And uh, one of her main arguments is that a lot of them are to protect the mom who would otherwise die. And her question is, why is it okay to put both mom and baby at risk knowing that they don't have a chance versus getting rid of the baby to give mom a healthy life? Julie, I want to commend you for having the conversation with your family member. Uh, Dr. Bill Lyle, who has been on my broadcast and uh, I've gotten to know him quite well. He's an OBGYN. He told me there is never a medical purpose to abort a child for the health of the mother. And typically it's best. Uh, for the mother to uh, have a C-section or at least give birth to that child, even if it's premature. But he said it's a false statement to believe that. So that's pretty powerful. You may want to check out some of Dr. Bill Lyle's uh, resources, and I'll put a link here so you can get there quickly. Um, but again, uh, we've got to be equipped and know how to answer these things directly. And I would encourage you to just uh, study up a bit from a pro-life perspective some of these uh, very rare situations that people bring up as the reason why abortion needs to be 
uh, available to all. And let me just remind everybody, uh, about 2% of abortions relate to rape, incest, or well-being of the mother. The other 98 are elective abortions for other reasons. At the bottom of all of it, though, is usually fear for that woman, and we get that. We're trying to knock down uh, some of those causes financially, for example, where women feel they financially can't support a baby. Uh, what can we do in the Christian community, mostly through pregnancy resource centers, to equip that mother to do it and not let finances be the issue? So again, uh, just educate yourself and get uh, get the answers to the questions before the questions are even asked. Thanks for the question. And because I used it here on the podcast, I'm going to send you a copy of my book, Refocus. Now, if you have a question for me, please send that to me by clicking on the tab on the right side of the show page that says, leave a voicemail. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. You can help us to encourage more people by telling your friends. Also, like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll have a phenomenal conversation with pediatrician Dr. Meg Meeker, along with Laura Perry Smaltz, who was formerly transgendered. And I was deeply moved by our conversation about how to show God's compassion for people who claim the transgender identity without approving of those choices. But God was pursuing me this whole time and my parents were praying and they had lots of people praying with them. And this began to be a supernatural miracle that just unfolded that no one could have um, seen coming. God did what no one could do and he radically transformed my life. That's on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. Are you a pastor? Then you know ministry is full of challenges. But those challenges sometimes come from lies that you believe about your role and expectations of you. As a pastor, you and your spouse need to be refreshed and encouraged. And that's why Focus on the Family presents the Focused Pastor Couples Conference. Join us as we hear from Paul David Tripp, Dr. Greg Smalley, Ted Cunningham, and more. Mark your calendar to join us on October 28th through 30th right here at Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. Visit thefocusedpastor.com slash refresh for more details.